If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and turn to Genesis chapter 4, right near the beginning of your Bibles. And uh, if you are visiting with us, we are just taking our time to work through the first 11 chapters of the Bible. They're pretty important chapters. Uh, They help us uh, create and form a biblical worldview, a lens through which we view the world around us. And so Genesis uh, chapter 4 is uh, another point in developing that worldview, as you will see in a moment. Uh, The text that uh, was read from James is so helpful here as it reminds us uh, as part of the tension in this text is friendship with the world uh, versus a love for God. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, you will be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Father, your word describes for us and to us so many different realities in life. And a text like this, a word like this, is not easy to wrap our heads around. Some of it is plain. Some of it seems not so plain. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and wills to submit to the work of your spirit as he exposes our hearts to this text. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're trying to get a handle on this particular portion of scripture and it really matters. At first glance, you read a text like this, and if you're thinking about it, maybe you might think, well, Cain and Abel, what does that have to do with Adam and Eve and the garden and all of that sort of thing? Uh, they've been kicked out of the garden, and we might expect a completely different story or a different, different direction, but this particular story is anything but a random addition to the text of Genesis. Rather, it is absolutely foundational to understanding humanity. Remember, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are about humanity in general. It's the history of the world. God's dealing with his people begins in Genesis chapter 12, but until then, it's his dealing with all of humanity. And Genesis 4 is absolutely critical to helping us understand Genesis 3.15 and the conflict or the enmity between two seeds. 
the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. This is the first squirmish of that enmity. This is the first battle. This is the first hostility that arises in these, uh, the enmity between these two seeds. And it's a hostility that you and I experience today. It's a hostility that we face when we go to school or when we go to work or when we go home and our family is hostile to the things of the Lord. It's a hostility that we see worked out in the education system. It's a hostility that's worked out in the laws that are being passed. This enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's an expression of what we will later read in Revelation chapter 12 and the battle that the serpent, the evil one, Satan, is waging against the seed of the woman. It helps to start in the New Testament and work our way backwards to get some kind of understanding of how we might understand this text. Jude chapter 1, verse 11. You can turn there if you'd like. It's an important verse, I think, one of the few places that this uh, account is referred to in the New Testament. But Jude chapter 1, verse 11, is an exposition and he's talking there about those who were false prophets in the church, those who had left the way of grace and were walking in the way of sin. And this is how he writes Jude in verse 11, Woe to them! Why? For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. What Jude is describing there is three different individuals who walked away from God, who were against God's people. In the error of Balaam, Balaam was asked to curse the people of God, and he eventually threw them into sexual immorality. Korah was there who rose up against Moses and wanted to depose Moses. They were against the ways of God and the words of God. And so Cain is also described as one who is opposed to the way of God. The way of Cain, then, is in opposition to the way of God. It's what's described in Psalm chapter 1. And the way of the righteous does not stand here, does not sit there, does not go there. And so if we read Jude chapter 1, verse 11 in our readings, we should ask ourselves, what is the way of Cain? How do I sort this out? And it should drive us back then to Genesis chapter 4, where we read about the way of Cain. And we should ask ourselves then, well, am I like Cain? Am I walking in the way of Cain? The second text is just back a few pages from Jude in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Another New Testament summary or, or exposition of the life of Cain. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, John begins by saying, we should not be like Cain. That's really important. You know, there's, there's people, if you, if you grew up in a home, you know, sometimes my mom and dad would say, don't be like this person, but be like that person. And John is being very clear, don't be like Cain. Why? He was of the evil one and murdered his brother. That, that should cause all kinds of bells to go off in our head. Don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Two paths, the way of wickedness, the way of righteousness, the way of God, the way that is opposed to God. Friendship with the world, friendship with God. 
John is blunt. We should not be like Cain. Again, then, that should cause us, if we read that, to go back to, to the story of Cain and Abel. Say, well, what was Cain like? Do I have any of Cain in me? Do I resemble Cain? Like, wh- wh- why this strong warning? What does John mean when he says he was of the evil one? Well, remember, Satan had already come and he had tempted Eve and Adam in the garden. Then he'd been kicked out. So obviously the evil one now is at work. He's been kicked out of the garden, as have Adam and Eve, but the evil one has not gone away with his tail between his legs. He is now actively at work in this new world. Paul would write about the evil one in uh, Uh, Corinthians, who has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. John, at the end of his book, John that we've just read, would say to us that uh, that we ought to be careful because Satan is, uh, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus prays that we would be kept from the evil one. So there is this battle, there is this tension, and that tension and battle goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. So we've got this contrast, the way of Cain, and we would assume the way of Abel. The clear demarcation between one whose deeds were wicked and one whose deeds were righteous. A disdain for the way of God and a love for the way of God. And I think a text that also helps us work this through is in John chapter 15, verse 17. These things I command you, Jesus says, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it had hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. This helps us understand what's going on with Cain and Abel. Abel, or Cain, was ticked at the love of Abel for God. And just as we who follow God and follow Jesus will be hated by the world because they hate the way of Jesus. So this hate was already existent recently outside of the garden. Now we're talking about two ways, two peoples. This is just sort of background to help you in your own hearts and minds get the scope of Scripture. Because remember, we're talking about two humanities here, two communities. Well, where, where do you get that from, Paul? Well, we'll read a couple texts. One is 1 John 1, 3, 8 to 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So there we have two communities, two families, characterized by the way that they live. One family who practices sinning is of the devil. The other practice who, a family who doesn't practice sinning is of God. For God's seed, there it is, this notion of God's seed is in him and he cannot keep in on sinning because he has been born of God. There's a transformation that has taken place. There's a new life inside of him. But this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. I'm not making this up. That's the Bible. Two families. We are either children of God or we are children of the devil. And he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Who does not practice, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This tension goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. 
Jesus, and you, you need to read this on your own, in chapter 13 of Matthew, talks about a parable. And he, he, he describes a, a field. And in this field, a farmer has wheat growing. And in the night, the enemy of the farmer comes and sows weeds in the field. And the disciples come to him and a little bit later and say, Jesus, can you tell us about this parable? We, we don't understand it. And Jesus says, uh, gives an illustration. I'll just give you one verse from it. This is what he says. The field is the world. This is the world in which we live. This whole world, all of humanity. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Do you see what he's saying? This world is made up of two peoples, two humanities, those who are sons of the kingdom and those who are sons of the evil one. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and he says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Jesus is saying there's two Spiritual fathers. He says, you are of your father, the devil. It's a significant question then that we ask ourselves. It's a significant way of viewing the uh, humanity in a microcosm as two humanities, two communities, two different peoples, two different paths, two different fathers. And so Genesis chapter 4 is the first introduction to these two humanities. It's this first introduction to the struggle, this enmity, this hostility that Jesus, that God said would now exist between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And just as Satan, when he was thrown out of heaven, took a third of the angels with him, so Satan has led a host of humanity in rebellion against God. And in Revelation chapter 12, we read about the result of Satan being thrown down to the earth, kicked out of heaven and thrown down to the earth. And it says, then the dragon, the serpent of Genesis 3, Satan, the devil, then the dragon became furious with the woman. Who's the woman? The woman is Israel. The woman is Mary. He became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, the seed of the woman. Satan is ticked. He's angry. He's, he's combative. He wants to destroy the seed of the woman. And who are the offspring of the woman? They are those who keep the commandments of God and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So after the fall, there are two humanities that begin to take root in the world that God has made. Those who will love God, those who will follow God, those who will worship God, and those who disdain God and who, will sell, who are selfish and rebel against God and love the world. And the Bible, then, is the story of these two seeds. It's helping us understand the world that we live in and the tensions that you and I face. But there's this wonderful way in which God is, is dealing in this world and He's, he sends us and he sends others to, to rescue people, to deliver them. And so in Acts chapter 26, we read about Paul being called by God to go to the Gentiles. And uh, Jesus says to him uh, that I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes. Why? 
so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. The Bible is a story about a grand rescue mission, about this incredible um, redemption that God has, the way to rescue people out of the grip of Satan and bring them into the wonder of his kingdom. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his, ho- of his own possession. And he says this, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is part of that battle. God is, he's grabbed us and he's pulled us out of one kingdom and brought us into another. And he's delivered us from moral darkness and he's brought us into moral light. Jesus, it says that in Colossians 1.13, that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. So this is the, this is the background to Genesis chapter four. It's not just about two boys. It is about two boys, but it's about two boys and the trajectory of their lives and the, the seed of which they are of. And as we come to the text and as we work it through ourselves, there are things that are true of every one of us uh, in here. The first is, it's set within a family. I don't know if you ever think of this very often, but Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel are a family. We sometimes, I don't know, I don't think of it. Sometimes I think, well, we've got Adam and Eve and then we've got Cain and Abel. I forget that, that they were a family living under one roof together. They were a mom and dad and they were two boys and there were obviously other children that came after Cain and Abel. And I think, was their home any different than our home? I don't think it was. Their home was, 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 was filled with love and laughter. Their home was filled with sorrow and pain. Their home was filled with sinners. They were sinners. Their children were sinners. Their children were now born with a sinful nature. And in this home that they have there is all kinds of tension and joy and stress and relaxation. And the progression of the story is so clear. The Bible says first Adam and Eve were married and then Adam knew his wife. That means Adam had sexual relations with his wife and she conceived and bore a son, Cain. And when Cain was born, she declared, I have gotten a man from the Lord. What a birth announcement that was. I don't know who they told, the animals maybe. I don't know what Adam knew. I don't know what Adam thought when he saw his wife getting this big stomach. And like, what would have gone through his head? Like, he must have talked with God. God, what, what have you done to my wife? And Eve must have wondered, what is going on inside of me? I don't understand this. It must have been something, for us, it's such a normal part of life now. It's something that we experience um, in so many different ways over so much time. But this is the first time carrying a baby. This is the first time having a baby. This must have been such a strange existence for this brand new couple. No reason to question whether Cain was their firstborn. I think Eve's words go with that. Uh, her statement is a statement of faith and also, I think, a statement of thanksgiving. 
the words with the help of are not in the original text. We, we, most translations have added them just to try and give some sense of an awkward Hebrew uh, sentence. It probably is best said along something like this, I have acquired a man from the Lord. That's a strange way to rejoice at the birth of a child, but I'm convinced that what uh, Eve was thinking was she had Genesis 3.15 in her mind. God had said, I'm going to send somebody who will crush the head of Satan. And she was believing that by faith. She was trusting that by faith. She didn't know that God had thousands of years down the road before that would be fulfilled. She didn't know that that child had to be God himself who would be born of the Virgin Mary. She just believed the promise. And so when Cain was born, she says, I've got the man. This is the serpent slayer. This is the one that's going to crush his head. And so she rejoiced in that. And then it says again, she bore his brother Abel. Some have suggested that Cain and Abel were twins. I can't imagine God would do that to a first-time mother. At least Eve. Could be, but uh, all we do know is that Abel was the younger of the two. And uh, then there was a significant time of, uh, amount of time that passed. And so this little family grew to four and then it grew to more. I'm sure that they uh, certainly had other girls. Um, we will find in Genesis 5 that then she bore Seth, which was a replacement for Abel. Um, but there were other children that were born. And uh, I suspect that their home was like your home and my home. Uh, it was full of, as I've already described, all kinds of tensions, all kinds of joys. What is strange is it says that uh, we know that Cain and Abel came from that home and we realize that Abel chose one path, and Cain chose the other path. How do we deal with that? Some of you know the pain of sons and daughters or of grandchildren who have rejected the way of the Lord, who have walked away from the things of God. What I do know is that until they breathe their last breath, God is able to rescue them. God is able to draw them out of darkness into light. God is able to deliver them from the power of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of light. And if you find yourself walking in a path which you know is in opposition to God, call out to God. He is gracious and merciful as we have sung. His love is deep. Before we were yet or while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this was a home, like yours and mine, but it was a home where sin is at work. And I, I didn't say this, but I, I want to add this. For us as parents and grandparents, one of the most important things is you can talk about sin in your home. There is such a thing as sin. We have medicalized behavior so that sin is no longer part of the conversation. But sin is a reality. There are medical reasons for things, but sin is also a reality in our homes. And we need to lead our children to the cross. We need to lead our children to Christ. We need to point them to Jesus who is able to deliver them, even them, from their sins. Our homes need to be homes that take the word of God seriously. The point that I'm saying is that Cain and Abel shared the same parents, ate the same food, lived under the same roof, heard the same things, and yet took two different paths. And then there was more time. 
It says, and then, uh, so we've got a lot of time covered in a very short number of verses. It says, as the boys grew up into men, they took two vocations on. One took a vocation of being a shepherd of, of sheep or maybe cattle, we don't know which, but certainly a shepherd. And the other took a, the vocation of being a farmer, um, uh, tilling the ground. Both of them honorable vocations, both of them biblical vocations, both of them um, part of what it means to have dominion over the world and to rule the world and those sorts of things. And it would seem like Cain maybe followed his father and Abel branched off in his own direction. But this is the history of every family. There's a, there's a micro unit. There's a little unit that comprises our family. Some are better than others. Some are more joyful than others. Some are more painful than others. But we all have a family. And so we're described here, the first family. The second is a worship setting. In the course of time, it seems to describe that at the end of a period of time, at the end of a period of days, that, that God had already been talking to Adam and Eve and even this young family, that there was a time and place for worship. That's about all I want to say. Some go into great detail and actually tell us where the place is and what the time is. I don't find that I can follow them. It just seems to indicate the phrase here that at the end of days, in the course of time, they brought their offerings to the Lord. They both came to the Lord with an offering. We don't know a whole lot of detail about these kind of things. All we know is that we are worshipers. Every one of us worship. Whether you worship God or not, you worship something. We are, we are those that, that understand our limitations, that understand our inabilities to provide for everything that we need, to understand that there's so much in the world that is outside of our power. And so we worship things that we think will provide for us, things that will help us, things that will give us happiness. As the John Calvin said, the heart is an idol factory. We're always making up something to worship. And so worship is not a strange thing to find here. In fact, God has created us with a heart that longs to worship him, but has to find him first. And so it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. They both brought an offering. Same word for offering. They both bought a gift to the Lord. One setting, two worshipers, two offerings, and God's verdict on both of them. They each brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of their vocation. It was through their vocation that they experienced the blessing of the Lord. It, whether, whatever you do, um, that is where you experience God's blessing. He gives you health. He gives you strength. He gives you wisdom. He gives you insight. He helps you make decisions. Uh, he's the one that, 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 that makes sure that your stuff grows. He's the one that makes sure that your stuff works, that you build and you make. And so it's just natural then that we look to God and say, thank you, God, for your help in my life this week in whatever it is that I do. I'm not at all one of those that think that the reason Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's was accepted was because one was a blood sacrifice and the other wasn't. Uh, that's reading way back from the New Testament into this text. It's also discounting the fact that in Leviticus there are both grain offerings and animal offerings that were acceptable to God. So I don't think the issue is in the fact that one was a blood offering and one was a cereal offering. Although there is great things to work through about the necessity of a blood offering. Some suggest that God was simply capricious. He just could do whatever he wanted. And so he just looked at Cain's offering. He said, nope. Looked at Abel's offering. He said, yep. That's not the God that we see in the Bible. It's certainly not the God of Genesis 1 and 2 that they would have known. Listen to how Cain's offering is described. 
Most translations would say something like, Cain brought some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. Just brought some of it. Not a lot of thought. Here's a pile of wheat, this'll do. Here's a basket in the corner, I'll bring that. You have to keep in mind that John says his deeds were evil. We don't know what part of the harvest he brought to the Lord. It was a thanksgiving offering. It was a way to acknowledge God's goodness and God's blessing to him. It was a way to acknowledge his dependence upon God. But it appears that Cain was stingy. Uh, Something in his heart said, no, I need to keep this stuff for myself. I'll I'll give some to God. But in the end of the day, um, this is my stuff. I've grown it. It was a duty to him. Listen, now Abel's offering is described. Some of the first fruits of, of, of his flock, the firstborn lambs, before he knew if the rest of the ewes would ever um, give birth, uh, he brought the fat portion of those firstborn, the best of the best he brought and offered it to the Lord, the tastiest cuts, in confidence that God had given to it and trusting that God would give him more when yet there wasn't any more. He just knew that God was the giver of all things, that God was the blesser of all things, and his heart said, I just have to acknowledge God. And it says in Hebrews 1, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. There was something going on in their hearts. Abel's heart was one that was stimulated by faith, that was full of dependence upon God and full of thanksgiving to God and acknowledging that all that he had came from God. And in Cain's heart, there was none of that. It's the state of the heart before God that matters. What's your heart in worship? Proverbs 3 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. That's a statement of faith, it's a declaration of trust. It's a way that we say, God, you know, um, you have blessed me. I don't know what the rest of the work week's going to look like. I don't know what the rest of the year is going to be. But you have blessed me today. Here, Lord, here is just some. Here's the top of what I've made. Hosea 6.6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God wants is a heart of obedience, a heart of love. The, the offerings are, are, are sort of secondary. They're almost peripheral. First Samuel, as Samuel is talking to Saul, has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Saul thought he would, Saul lied. He's kind of like Cain. Saul thought, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to keep a lot of this spoil that I've got. But I'm going to keep it under the, the guise that, you know, I'm, I'm, I really want to give the best of the spoil. Although I'm going to keep the rest, I'm going to give the best of the spoil to God, where God had said to Saul, kill it all. And so Samuel talking to him says, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God is more concerned with your heart. Why it is that you do what you do. Why it is you live the way that you do. Why it is that you serve the way that you do. Why it is that you give what you give. He sees our hearts. Matthew 5, 24. Leave your gift there before the altar 
and go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. How can, you, how can we have a conflicted heart in worship? How can we worship God whether here or at home and pray to God and ask God to bless us when we're at war with a brother or sister in Christ? How does that work? We get used to doing that. God never gets used to it. He says, go and try and fix it. Go and try and resolve it. And then come and worship me. Psalm 50, verse, starting at verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. This is God. I don't want your time. I don't want your money. I don't want your sacrifices. Why? For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? In other words, God says, I am self-sufficient. I don't need you, you need me. But this is then what he says. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. What God wants is our heart. Our heart that says, God, I acknowledge that all that I have comes from your hand. God, I know that you have called me to walk in a certain way, and I will walk in that way. I won't hide my disobedience by all my wonderful sacrifices and my wonderful offerings in the way that I, that I serve. No, I will walk in your way with my heart. And God, I will trust in you when I get into trouble. I won't run to my bank account. I, I won't run to this person. I won't seek help from Egypt. Lord, I will run to you, and I will call out to you. You can't separate the heart from your worship. Worship is a heart matter. And God discerned that difference in Cain and in Abel. I wonder, too, if as Cain was working through the fact that God had no regard for his offering and had regard for Abel's. Sort of what we read from John, friendship with the world, or what we read from Jesus, that they will hate you because they hated me. There is a disdain for the people of God. There is a disdain for the ways of God. And if you go to school and you you walk in God's way. If you go to work and you walk in God's way, if you go home and you live for God, there's a hostility and an enmity towards the people of God. And I wonder if that enmity was growing in Cain's own heart as he looked over at Abel because Cain's actions were evil but Abel's were righteous. And so here we have the beginnings of these two communities, of these two lines. 
Same family, same mother and father, two different trajectories. One setting of worship, two different offerings, two different hearts. Two ways, the way of Cain, the way of Abel. The way of righteousness, the way of evil. Your father God or your father the evil one? It matters, loved ones, how you walk. It matters how you worship. It matters who your father is. Father, we thank you for your word and for its help for us. Sometimes we get lost in the weeds and we lose sight of the big picture. I think Genesis 4 helps us reorient ourselves a little bit in this world in which we live. It helps us understand some of the tensions and hostilities we feel. It helps us um, see ourselves a little bit differently and understand why we wrestle with the things we do, how our hearts are given to one thing and not another thing. Father, instruct us, I pray. Uh, help us, I pray. Father, I pray that you'd be with the homes and the families represented here. They're wonderful, wonderful gifts. But they're also sometimes places of incredible tension. Father, would you give moms and dads, grandfathers and grandmothers, great wisdom as they lead their families. And would you help them in the midst of all that they deal with to recognize that sin is part of the equation in their homes? And would you lead them biblically to instruct and warn and encourage their kids? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.